Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Philip Wallach, who is the author of To the Edge, Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis, book was published by Brookings Institutional Press in 2015. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Philip. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm talking today with the author of To the Edge, Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis. book is published by Brookings Institutional Press. The author is Philip Wallach. Philip, how are you doing today? Hi, Heath. Good to be with you. I'm good. Yeah, it's a pleasure to to have you with us. Um, Pleasure to have read the book. Uh, before we get to it, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, where uh, where you are, where you've been. Uh, so I'm a fellow at the Brookings Institution. I've been here for about three years now. Uh, before that, I was getting my Ph.D. in politics at Princeton. And I, I study a variety of sort of public law, regulatory stuff uh, all over the board, but I've had a special interest in financial regulation and in the financial crisis ever, ever since it happened uh, last decade. And uh, I started this project as kind of a, a side paper when I was in graduate school, and, and thankfully I've had the chance here at Brookings to, to turn it out uh, into a book that, that covers the whole sort of field of legal and political controversies about the crisis. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um and I think it's important before we even get to sort of the book, I think it's important to start with what the book is not about. And, and you're pretty clear about this in the introduction. So you, you do not set out to render judgments about the government's decisions related to the financial crisis. Um, why did you choose not to write that book? I suppose it's a matter of humility. I, I have my opinions, but I'm not sure exactly why anyone should treat those as, as authoritative. So I think some of my opinions come out in the book. But my goal is a broader a broader one, which is, is to think about why it is that certain actions were regarded by a larger swath of the public or by a larger swath of relevant elites as particularly problematic. So it's not just about me writing a series of of op-eds about everything that went happened. It, it's a, it is trying to be a work of, of political science, thinking about exactly what factors uh, drive the public's reaction. And, you know, as I think as you just alluded, you know, instead of this, you know, very kind of, um, as you described, sort of an op-ed take, you, your book looks at a big concept, and, and that is legitimacy. It frames the whole, the whole take. Um, what do you mean by legitimacy? And and why is this idea so important during crises of any sort, including the financial type? Right. So it's a very slippery concept. Uh, definitely can be confusing. I think there's a, a normative way of looking at it, which is how people often think of it, and especially how political theorists tend to think of it, which is to say, 
what exactly makes a government or particular government actions legitimate and to offer some sort of prescription about compliance with the rule of law um, or fidelity to constitutional ideals or something of, of that nature. And so political theorists and a lot of legal academics will offer competing sort of prescriptions. My, my approach is quite different. It's sort of derived from the Weberian tradition of thinking more about legitimacy as a as an emergent social fact. So it's not just a question of, I have a set of criteria and does an action fit into it, but without any preconceptions about exactly what the public will find legitimacy, will find legitimate, trying to look at what they do, what they do treat as legitimate. Um, and that's a challenge, um, you know, in political science terms, it's, it's hard to know exactly how to operationalize the variable. Because I don't think it's just a matter of public opinion, public opinion that gets reflected by polls. Um, it's something a little bit more complicated than that, but it, it, it's, some, it's some way of seeing what the public as a whole, and again, the relevant elites probably, especially in financial crises, um, how they render their judgments. So the other question you asked was why, why legitimacy becomes so important in crises. So crises test the resilience of political regimes. Um, something, by definition, it's a crisis. Something is going wrong uh, and, and requiring an extraordinary response. And for a government to be able to make such an extraordinary response, it needs it needs to have a certain amount of legitimacy, and especially if it's able, if it needs to be able to fail and still go on and do more, uh, rather than sort of people going for the guillotines in the extreme case. So, yeah. so crises test uh, test the legitimacy of, of our political institutions. Um, I think the financial crisis requires sort of requires a spending down of political capital in some ways. And legitimacy you can think of as a stock of political capital. And, uh, and we, what we saw in response to the financial crisis was uh, a government in, in the second Bush administration that was already on thin ice in a lot of ways and not in the best position to legitimate a crisis response. Uh, but they managed to muddle through, and the Obama administration kind of continued a lot of their policies. But what we see is that even though a lot of the policies look pretty good in retrospect, the legitimacy of our institutions was significantly damaged uh, by, by the crisis responses. It makes me nervous about whether we would have sufficient legitimacy to provide adequate responses to another crisis if it should arise. Um, so that's, that's, what I, that's what I'm thinking about with legitimacy. Yeah, and let's get to the, you know, kind of the meat of the book, which is the various parts of the financial sector meltdown in 2009 or so. Um, you know, without recounting all of the details, of which there are many, uh, would you walk us through first what happened with Bear Stearns, what, what you describe in the book as Legal creativity unleashed. Uh, that's the first case, and, and tell us about it. Right. So the, the 
crisis, according to some economists, got started in the summer of 2007 with some uh, French um, funds running into problems. But the first dramatic occurrence in the United States was when Bear Stearns, which was a, a large and important investment bank, uh, I think it was the seventh largest or something, uh, <clears throat> when it, it saw, all of a sudden saw its stock price tumble from in the 50s somewhere down to a, a few dollars a share and looked to be headed for bankruptcy because of exposure to subprime mortgages that were turning out to be uh, much, much worse investments than people had realized. So, Bear Stearns was on the ropes, and there was a real question of what the federal government's role was in keeping an investment bank like that out of bankruptcy. If it had been a standard commercial bank, um, then the FDIC could have stepped in and done its bank resolution, managed it in that way, but it doesn't have any powers, or it didn't at the time have any powers to do that. But instead, the Federal Reserve stepped into the gap. It invoked um, Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, uh, which is a section of its charter that allows it to make loans to non-banks in unusual and exigent circumstances. And what it did was it essentially facilitated the sale of Bear Stearns to J.P. Morgan by setting up a corporation called Maiden Lane LLC. Maiden Lane is the street that runs behind the New York uh, Federal Reserve Bank. And this company would take off off the books of Bear Stearns some of its most hard-to-value assets, therefore making it more palatable for J.P. Morgan Chase to buy it. And that's what happened. Um, now, that's already... The Fed getting creative with its chart. Nothing like that had ever happened before. It was exposing itself to real losses potentially if if those um, hard-to-value assets turned out to be worth less than they were estimating. And it, it engaged in a fair amount of fancy footwork by creating this off-the-books uh, special-purpose vehicle made in the lane. Um, and making it technically made a loan to Maiden Lane, which would which then purchased these assets. But that gets the Fed into some pretty tricky territories. The Fed naturally makes loans, but in this case, it seemed more like it was purchasing assets, and it would repeat variations of that maneuver quite a few times over the course of the crisis, um, as the crisis worsened in the fall of 2000. And beyond. Now, you use this term in the book adhocracy uh, throughout, um, and, and you argue that the situation with AIG and money market mutual funds demonstrates this practice. So, how does it, how does it do so? How do we move from Bear Stearns to AIG and any money market mutual funds and, and uh, move from simply sort of legal creativity to something uh, new and, and, and quite surprising? Well, I think Bear Stearns is the first step in it. But what I mean by adhocracy is this feeling that we were going from crisis weekend to crisis weekend. That, that's how 
is operated in practice, making sure the, you know, trying to address financial institutions that look to be failing over the weekend before markets reopened on Monday. And we had one for Bear Stearns. And then in September of 2008, we have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac run into a similar problem. And then famously Lehman Brothers uh, had a weekend that did not result in a rescue in the end. There was a, a frantic effort to devise a Bear Stearns-style rescue in which Barclays would have acted as the purchaser, but it fell through. Um, and what people were so struck by after Bear Stearns was rescued but Lehman was not was a sense that, you know, the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve were just making this up as they were going along. Nobody understood the rules of the game. That's kind of a bad situation for markets in general, and it actually, the failure of Lehman caused the knock-on failure of uh, some money market funds, which are a, a kind of investment that's supposed to be absolutely safe, that people just thought of as totally risk-free, but all of a sudden you had a money market fund um, having its shares dip below par value um, and needing a dramatic rescue for that. Now, where was the rescue going to come from? Ideally, you'd say to, to, to get out of this pattern of just having ad hoc responses, you'd have Congress pass a law. But our executive branch officials thought that that was too slow in the midst of the worst of the crisis in, in mid-September. 2008. So they devised a very legally bold rescue of the money market funds where the Treasury used the Exchange Stabilization Fund, uh, which is sort of a pot of money that had no real connection to this sort of thing, and they used it to guarantee money market funds. It was a very successful maneuver, but very legally dubious. Uh, at the same time, the Fed decided that it could find a way to make loans enough to rescue AIG just days after it had decided that it couldn't make loans to Lehman Brothers. And the juxtaposition of those decisions made, made people feel, again, that really adhocracy was the order of the day. Um, there was no clear set of rules in place. And, you know, then we had, at the end of September into the beginning of October, a frantic push to have Congress come in and legislate some kind of solution, uh, you know, working in cooperation with the Treasury Department. They ended up passing the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, better known as TARP, uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was the main component of the law. And so we might expect that that whole series of ad hoc decision-making would just come to an end once we get a law in place. But that's really not what happened. Ad hocracy continued alongside alongside TARP, and TARP ended up being used in ways that nobody had really expected. So really a dominant theme of the government's responses throughout the crisis was this sense of uncertainty, this sense of making it up as we're going along. And... Uh, that has very serious consequences. It's much more difficult to achieve legitimacy for actions made 
in that sort of pattern rather than decisions made according to some well-established set of rules. I'm glad that you fold in the role of Congress here because much of this takes place within the various parts of the executive branch, but but Congress gets involved and and Senator Chuck Schumer at one point says, when you're staring into the abyss, you don't quibble about the details. To what extent was Schumer right? Uh, to, what, to what extent uh, did this situation call for the exact uh, approach that was that was taken? Um, uh, maybe you could sort of give us that perspective that, that Schumer had from and the Senate had on uh, on these issues. Sure. So I think there is a sense among legislators that the executive branch is the appropriate locus for crisis response in lots of ways. And, you know, if we take a long historical view, whenever there are crises, we see the executive branch do some legally unusual things. Um, And I think Schumer's statement is right, uh, but the question is exactly how far does that go and exactly how long is that supposed to last? Um, so it's very interesting how much Congress wanted not to get their hands on this situation as 2008 unfolded. Uh, we know from some, some good reporting that there were some very clear back-channel communications from the congressional leadership to Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson and, and Ben Fed. Chairman Ben Bernanke, that they said, listen, you guys do this. Don't don't ask us for permission. Use your authorities aggressively. Get us involved as late as you possibly can. Uh, so that's Congress sort of trying to avoid responsibility uh, as long as possible and let the executive branch take the initiative. But at a certain point, the sort of you, the executive branch has stretched its existing powers as far as they can comfortably go, again, without without seriously jeopardizing the legitimacy. So they have to go to the people's branch of government and say, we need your permission. We need your explicit ability to legitimate what we're doing or, or to give us new powers that we can't claim under this existing authorities. And that's a tricky process because if you ask and then Congress says no, in some sense, the executive branch may find itself much weaker than it was before it asked. And that's what very nearly happened with TARP when the House of Representatives voted it down the first time. Uh, and, you know, markets took that as a, as a disastrous, almost apocalyptic kind of sign that things might really uh, fall apart in terms of the government's response. Uh, it was only a few days later that, that they managed, the Senate passed it and the House on the second time around passed it as well. Um, but Congress, Congress is the most uh, naturally situated branch to perform this legitimation function. Um, and you, the executive branch can try to figure out quite a lot without it, but it, at the end of the day, it needs Congress's backing uh, to be able to act legitimately. Uh, now, much of this book is about the, the recent past. 
but these issues don't go go away. You you end the book by looking ahead a little bit. Um, where, where do you sit at the end of writing this book about the capacity uh, of of our government to respond to crises like this one, but but other crises that that might not be of the financial nature, but but maybe just as difficult to deal with. Uh, where do you end this? Well, uh, that's a big question. So I, I think I, I'm worried in many ways about, again, our, our sort of hangover from the financial crisis. And, you know, to boot, we've had um, a decade of wars that the American citizenship citizenry has has felt mostly rather dissatisfied with. Basically, uh, you know, I, I feel like our institutions of government have had their legitimacy diminish quite a lot. And you can see that in some polling data. You know, Pew asks about trust in institutions, and those are still scraping all-time lows right now. Um, so it worries me, and it also worries me that... In some ways, we've not done such a good job of directly tackling this problem in the years since the financial crisis has abated. Um, and you could chalk that up to a lot of things. I mean, Dodd, the Dodd-Frank Act obviously targets some of, some of the deficiencies that were made evident in the crisis. And so, for example, there's now the power to resolve non-commercial banks, things like investment banks, things like Bear Stearns, so that the FDIC is empowered to to try to routinize some kinds of institutional failures that, that proved so chaotic the last time around. Whether that's going to be successful is a very hot topic of debate here in Washington. Um, but I think in a lot of other ways, some some of what was most legally dicey in terms of the government's responses in, in 2008 and 2009 really hasn't been addressed. Uh, I think we would still be relying on the Federal Reserve to get legally creative in response uh, to financial shocks. And I'm also just worried about the way that, that Congress seems to seems to more and more acquiesce to its own marginalization. And, you know, when you think about, when I look over at the national security con- context, which I'm very much uh, a dilettante, so it, it can take what I say with a grain of salt, but I try to learn from my colleagues here at Brookings who write the Lawfare blog. Um, and it seems to me that it's it's remarkable how much Congress has been marginalized as we try to decide how our country deals with the the, the crisis that ISIS represents, um, or just you know many of the problems over the last years. It's very very executive branch dominated, and you know when when things go well, that probably doesn't matter so much. Uh, but when when we try to respond to crises and we run into difficulties, that's when you really need this foundation of legitimacy and when you need to have a first branch, a legislature that's able to channel um, the public's feelings and confer legitimacy 
And that's that's what I'm worried that we don't have right now. Um, that's a big problem. Uh, it's it's not it's not the kind of thing you can just say. If only we would flip this one switch of this institutional decision, things will get right. Um, but I do think that part of the problem is that our our government officials just don't think very explicitly about the need to to safeguard and bolster their own legitimacy. They think that it's their job to take care of the policy and legitimacy will, will just flow from that. I think there's some truth to that position, but it's but it's often very short-sighted. And part of my part of the purpose of my book is to try to speak to policymakers and say, no, legitimacy isn't something that just takes care of itself automatically. You need to think very explicitly about the kinds of things the kinds of policies you can choose, the kinds of procedures you can put into place as you make crisis decisions that will help legitimate uh, crisis responses. Philip's really interesting book is uh, titled To the Edge, Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis, again published by Brookings Institution Press. Philip, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, Hugh.